So if you've been with us, you know we've been working our way slowly but surely through First and Second Samuel. We've been there since last fall. These last few weeks, we took a pause to be through the life of Elijah, and that's been amazing. This morning, we are diving right back in to 2 Samuel. Next week, we'll look at 2 Samuel chapter 7 and the Davidic covenant with the privilege of having Ligon Duncan here, who's a chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary. You do not want to miss that. That is an area of expertise for Ligon. Uh, We're in for a real treat. But this morning, we're looking at 2 Samuel chapter 6. I'll be reading verses 1 through 16, and then I'll pick up again in verse 20. Would you please stand for reading of God's word? Again, this is 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel, chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. The ark of God and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting, with the sound of the horn. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Continuing of verse 20, and David returned to bless his household, but Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how can the king of Israel honor himself today, uncovering himself Before the eyes of the servants, the female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of one whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, 
had no child to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The given name for the human race, scientifically, is the term Homo sapiens. Now, Homo sapiens is Latin for the thinking man. And while it is true that our superior cognitive abilities separate us from the rest of the animal kingdom, thinking is not what it fundamentally means to be human. An Orthodox priest named Alexander Schmemann suggested that perhaps a better term should be used, homo adorans. That is Latin for the worshiping man. In other words, what it fundamentally means to be human is not that we are thinkers, but that we are worshipers. This is true whether you believe in God or not. You see, what drives us as human beings is not necessarily what we think, but what we desire, what we love, what we adore. Yes, what we worship. And the reality is that this is more true to our daily experience than we care to admit. Let me give you a few examples. You do not pull in to a Whataburger and order an A1 thick and hearty burger with two patties, two pieces of cheese, smothered in grilled onions because you are thinking clearly. Okay? You do that because of a desire deep in your gut. When you spend a lifetime as a Cowboys fan, you are doing so not because of a coherent, rational thought. <laughs> it's because that's the team you're devoted to. That's the team that you adore. You just can't help yourself. You spend life with your spouse, with friends, with a roommate, you laugh with them, you cry with them, you live life with them, not because of some mathematical formula, but because of love. You see, the choices that we make in life, from the biggest choices and the biggest decisions right down to the most mundane, are driven primarily not by what we think, but by what we adore. We are worshipers. And this is true not just experientially, this is true biblically. Isaiah 43 says that God formed us in order to praise his name. We were created to worship. The Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 12, says that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice that this is our spiritual act of worship. What does that mean? That means that worship never stops. Worship does not start on a Sunday morning. 
when we gather together. Worship does not end on a Sunday morning at the benediction. You and I were created to worship in every single aspect of life. What this means is that worship is the primary action of humanity, of all humanity. And we see this all over our culture. We worship celebrities. We worship ideas. We worship causes. We worship money, fame, security, success, power. We worship happiness. Our problem is not that we don't worship. Our problem is that we worship everything. You and I were created to live a life in awe and to live a life of joy. And yet what we find ourselves as we worship everything is that so often the lives that we lead are absent of awe and lacking in joy. This morning, our passage redeems the idea of worship for us. It gives us a new vision and a new picture of what it means to have the heart of a worshiper. David brings the ark of God into Jerusalem, and he does so with reverent awe and unrestrained joy. And as we look into his heart, his heart for the Lord, we will see what it truly means to have a heart of worship. And so the first thing I want us to see this morning is this. Worship begins with awe. I want you to look at verse 1. We're told that David gathered 30,000 chosen men of Israel to go and get the ark. Now this number is so large that Many biblical scholars think it has to be a misprint, but I don't think it is. You see, because I think David saw the ark for what it was. He recognized its importance, and so he sent an army to go get it, 30,000 soldiers. The ark of God was a symbol, and really not just a symbol, but a real manifestation of God's holy presence. If you remember all the way back in the fall, we saw how the people of Israel saw the ark. Way back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, they saw the ark as a good luck charm, something for them to take into battle. And so God allowed them to be defeated. He allowed the ark to be captured by the Philistines. And then as the Philistines, these godless people had the ark, he afflicted them with a plague until they gave it back. And what you may not have realized is that that's the last time in First and Second Samuel that the ark has even been mentioned. First Samuel chapter 7 all the way till Second Samuel chapter 6. No mention of the ark of God. Why? Because under the reign of King Saul, the people of Israel lost their sense of awe. As Saul sought to build his own kingdom, the kingdom of God was diminished in the eyes of the people. And they lost their ability to have awe of the Lord. 
I want you to look at verse 3. It says, They carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab. This is how we see their awe truly diminished. And you say, well, how could that be? They got the ark, they put it on a cart. It was a new cart, no less. And they drove it to Jerusalem. How does that show us that these people had lost their sense of awe, their sense of wonder? What you might not realize is that God's law was very specific on how the ark was supposed to be carried. The ark of God had rings on the side of it. And they were designed to have poles put through them. Consecrated priests were commanded to carry the ark by these poles by the power of their own two hands. What is more is they were commanded never to touch the ark. If they touched the ark, the punishment was death. And yet here's Uzzah and Ahio, and they've put the ark on a cart, a common cart pulled by dirty oxen, like an ordinary piece of furniture. Yes, maybe it makes some practical sense, but it did not honor God for his holiness with reverence and respect. And so, verse 6, as this ark is being pulled on its way to Jerusalem, the oxen stumble. And as Uzzah is driving the oxen, seeing that the ark is beginning to shake, he does what anybody would do. He reaches out his hand to stable the load, to make sure that the ark doesn't tip over. But in that moment, in his effort to try to protect the ark, he defames the ark. He does what no one was allowed to do. He touches it. And next we're told, verse 7, that the anger of the Lord was kindled against him, and God struck him down. I wonder, this morning as you hear that, what emotions does that fill you with? How does that make you see God? Do you find yourself perhaps bothered by that? Maybe even a little angry? I mean, after all, Uzzah was just trying to help. Why would God do such a thing? Have you ever felt anger towards the Lord for something that he did in his own sovereign power? If that's how you feel this morning, you're not alone. David felt that way too. Verse 8, David was angry. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. But what I want you to see this morning is anger was not the only emotion that David felt. Verse 9, and David was afraid of the Lord that day. Not only did David feel anger, David felt fear. What I want us all to begin to recognize is that this is not necessarily a bad thing. David was beginning to reclaim a sense of awe. 
we don't always associate fear with awe. But I want you for just a second this morning to think about a Texas thunderstorm. I want you to imagine in your mind what it's like to see it roll in. The dark clouds, the flash of lightning, and the loudest clap of thunder you have ever heard that it shakes your house. When we see a thunderstorm, there is a sense of fear that we feel that is coupled with a sense of awe because it's amazing. That kind of power, it fills us with a sense of respect and even a sense of reverence. We recognize that we should probably go inside. This is what it looks like to fear the Lord. To recognize his power and his majesty and to give him the respect and reverence that is due to his name. The book of Revelation puts it this way. John writes, Revelation 14, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead, and he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth. Brothers and sisters, when we come to worship God, we should be in awe of him of his power, of his majesty, and of his glory. And that should fill us with reverence and respect. But not only should we have reverent awe when we worship, we should also have joy. The second thing I want us to see this morning is that worship reorients our joy. Look at verse 12. We're told that then David went and he brought the ark of God to the house of Obed-Edom from there to the city of David, and he did so with rejoicing. Now, rejoicing is an incredibly important word in the Bible. We see it all over the Psalms, many of which David wrote himself. Psalm 14, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Psalm 97, rejoice in the Lord. But not only did David write about rejoicing, but the Apostle Paul gave these instructions to the churches. Romans chapter 12, rejoice in hope. 2 Corinthians 13, rejoice. Brothers, rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always. And then all over the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, be glad and rejoice with me. Philippians chapter 3, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord. Always again I say, rejoice. Now why do I read all of that to you this morning? There's something I want you to notice about the word rejoice in all of these verses. Rejoice is a command. In other words, joy is not optional in the Christian life. Joy is expected. And let me show you why that's such good news. First question, Westminster Shorter Catechism. Many of you know it by heart. What is the chief end of man? 
The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You were created for joy. The purpose of life is for joy. The meaning of life is joy. Joy is what we are created for. And so verse 14, we see that David danced before the Lord with all his might. Yes, there was reverence. Yes, there was awe, but there was also unrestrained joy. When was the last time that you went dancing? When was the last time that you danced with all your might? You know when it was for me? It was last night. I still feel a little sore. (laughs) Last night, I took my oldest daughter to her first daddy-daughter dance at school. And let me tell you something. There is no greater picture of unrestrained joy than a seven-year-old girl dancing to Shake It Off by Taylor Swift. (laughs) My friends, this is what I want you to see this morning. That is what worship should look like. If we're going to be honest, sometimes our worship looks a little less like a seven-year-old girl dancing with all her might and a little bit more like a seventh-grade dance. No offense, seventh-graders. But you know what I mean. Kind of awkward. A little bit too self-aware to have any fun. A little bit too much conscientiousness going on about everybody around us wondering, what do they think of me? And is my voice very good? And am I wearing the right thing? Am I saying the right words? Am I doing any of this right? Now, I I know some of you are starting to get a little nervous. So let me tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that from here on out at PCPC, we're going to pass out tambourines and ribbons and dance in the aisles. Although... Some of us maybe need to loosen up a little bit. You know who you are. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that worship is a celebration. Worship should fill us with joy. David danced before the Lord with all his might. And my friends, this is why we gather for corporate worship on a Sunday morning. Because we need our joy to be reoriented. We were created for joy, but we settle for happiness. It's the American dream. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But the honest truth is is that the pursuit of happiness is an unending pursuit. Because happiness is temporary. Happiness is connected to circumstance. And so we pursue better circumstances in order to be more happy. But joy is something completely different. Joy is not temporal. It's not connected to circumstance. Joy is connected to the heart of God who is unchanging. Jesus said, abide in me so that your joy might be full. The truth is so often we come to a sanctuary like this we don't quite feel that, do we? We don't feel joy. 
Brothers and sisters, that's why corporate worship is so essential. Why do we do this on a Sunday morning? I mean, we could just be sleeping in or going to get brunch. Why do this? Why come on a Sunday morning and worship God together? There are so many reasons. Let me just give you one. So that our joy would be reoriented in Jesus Christ. I want you to take your bulletin very quickly. And I want you to see something. Every single thing that we do in corporate worship is designed to reorient us back to Jesus so that our joy might be found in him. Our call to worship every single Sunday is an invitation, a declaration of God's hospitality that all are welcome in his presence, no matter your background, no matter your belief, no matter where you live or what you look like. And then we move from there to a profession of faith. We do that in order to remind one another of what we hold to be true about God, yet it is so easy to forget. And then we confess our sin. We do so together as God's people because all of us are sinful and all of us fall short of the glory of God. And then we hear these words of assurance We find pardon and forgiveness. Why? Because the gospel has been freely given. This morning, if you have never trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, believe in him for your salvation because we are sinful and we need a savior. And then we come to the preached word and the reading of the word because we need God's truth to be planted deep in our hearts We celebrate the sacraments in order to commune with him and to see salvation right in our midst. And then we are sent out with the benediction, having our joy being reoriented to Jesus Christ, sent out into the world to a joyless world that desperately needs rescue. So what does this look like? As we close this morning, how how might our worship be both reverent and full of awe and yet also full of unrestrained joy. The last and final thing I want to say is that worship must be centered on Jesus Christ. You see, it is in the person and work of Jesus Christ that our awe of God's judgment collides with our joy of God's rescue And so I know it seems obvious that worship should be centered on Jesus, but the honest truth is so often we worship our, or we center our worship on so many other things, not just as individuals. That's certainly true. And our worship of idols and our occupations and our spouses and our kids and how people think of us, we worship so many things, but it's not just true of us as individual worshipers. We find our center, even in corporate worship, on other things. The truth is, we'll worship things like style of music. Whether we or not we like that particular preacher or that particular 
song or that particular liturgy. We find ourselves so distracted. And as we gather as God's people on a Sunday morning and then throughout the week, we must center ourselves on Jesus Christ. We must allow him to center us to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And so we see this, verse 20, as David comes back to bless his household, the people have gathered to worship, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, calls him out. You might not know that she's actually David's wife, but here she's identified as Saul's daughter because that's really where her true allegiance lies. And she calls him out and she says, why have you uncovered yourself before the servants? You've dishonored yourself. And her question has caused many to assume that David must have been dancing before the Lord in his underwear. What's he doing? Why would he do such a thing? But notice, Michal's not focused on what he's wearing. She's focused on what he's not wearing. David has removed his kingly robes. Verse 14, we're told he's wearing a linen ephod. A linen ephod was the garment of a priest. Michal is upset with David because he's not behaving like a king. No, he has debased himself. He's humbled himself before the people. He has removed his kingly robes and he stepped down off of the throne in order to lead God's people to the throne of God. Brothers and sisters, you and I have another priest king. And this priest king also took off his kingly robe. Our priest king, Jesus Christ, removed his kingly robes and he stepped down off of the throne and he took on flesh. He humbled himself and took the form of a servant and then he defiled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. He did this for you and me. And though many have looked on the cross as a source of shame and dishonor, our profession of faith this morning tells us that in Christ laying his life down and making himself nothing, that he is now risen again and he is seated at the right hand of God so that every knee should bow and every tongue declare his praise. This morning, do you hear God's invitation to bow down before your priest king, Jesus Christ, to see him with reverent awe and to worship him with unrestrained joy? Let me pray. Father, we find ourselves this morning so often disconnected from your truth. Would you reorient us this morning to your truth and may we find joy as we abide in your son. And we pray now by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit that you would give us fullness of joy. That as we sing this last hymn, that we'd lift the transcendent glory of your name with reverence and awe, but that you would fill our hearts 
with overwhelming joy, we ask in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.